Welcome back to the uh, the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Uh, I am uh, absolutely thrilled to have uh, my good friend Michael Bruno with me. Michael is the uh, executive editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. Uh, he and I were together out in LA a couple of weeks ago at a, a great supply chain conference there. And I love reading his, his articles in, uh, in Av Week. And, and Michael, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Craig. It's an honor to be here. And uh, and a big thank you to you from Aviation Week, because you've been an expert uh, uh, speaker at a couple of our events over the years, and, and that's much appreciated, too. Always, uh, I always appreciate the invitations. So thank you. Um, all good. Well, hey, look, lots of lots of interesting stuff going on in aviation and defense right now. A little bit of commercial aviation uh, rebuilding uh, engines. You know, the commercial engines market is changing pretty dramatically. Dramatically, obviously, Ukraine and defense spending. Uh, how do you see the uh, How do you see the industry right now? Oh my goodness. Um... So at the risk of abusing that cliche about may you live in interesting times, you know, I think aerospace and defense uh, is actually going through a much more uh, epochal moment, uh, a much greater change than even we realize, the people who are in the middle of it, um, for sure, because uh, you know, not only would nobody have ever seen the COVID pandemic and the um, the max crisis and 787 production crisis. and uh, But now we are coming out of those with a brand new world that has um, all these factors from inflation to workforce to the war in Ukraine between that country and the Russian invaders. And that has geopolitical spillovers to the China-America relationship. And it's it's an amazing world that I think nobody would have predicted just a couple of years ago. Here we are in the middle of it, and it's got so many ramifications that come right back to aerospace and defense. So, you know, where to start? Um, just to hit a couple of the broad points, um, I think it's amazing that here we are at the beginning of 2023, and it's a very rare moment where the majority of the analysts and the consultants and the experts that I talk to who track the economic cycles of this industry um, all believe that things are going up and to the right. It's positive. We are looking at increasing business activity basically across the board. It's a question of how much. You've got defense that's going up, driven by increasing defense spending, which is driven by the United States budget. You've got a commercial aircraft market that is growing Believe it or not, despite all the issues we hear about with supply chain issues and and whatever else and the occasional airline still going out of business, um, we're set for you know trying to introduce 20,000 new commercial airliners into this market one way or another over the next 20 years and rising commercial passenger traffic worldwide. Um, so that's taking off. You've got the aftermarket world, which is kind of going gangbusters yep. right now. Um, and isn't expected to let off because of supply chain issues I just mentioned for commercial aircraft. Business aviation, oh my goodness. How many years in the past decade did everybody think it was a zombie industry? It was just never going to recover. And business aviation is has got supply constraints and they can't provide enough aircraft and business activity is up. I've seen a lot of estimates that the pandemic probably led to a 10 to 20% permanent increase uh, in just takeoffs and landings. Mm -hmm. So 
You know, <laughs> what industry wouldn't take a 10 to 20% permanent increase? Um, so you've just got so much positivity right now in the industry. And at the exact same time, there seem to be so many more risks. I mentioned the Russian-Ukraine war, the geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S. Um, that has ramifications for a couple of these uh, niches in our industry. Um, Boeing and Airbus, but particularly Boeing, is so um, desperate and basically handcuffed to the Chinese market in many ways. And I don't think uh, many Americans, even within industry, I don't think many um, US players in the aerospace and defense understand just how critical China is to Boeing on a long-term growth uh, basis. Um, plus you've got these other macroeconomic issues like workforce and inflation, I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into them and supply chain. I'm, I suspect maybe we should talk about supply chain next because you and I were yeah. at one of those events. Yeah, well, look, supply, yeah, that's where, yeah, the supply chain is crazy right now. I mean, I've done, you know, I've done a bunch of work for some airframers, composites, manufacturers. Um, they're just struggling to keep up. They're, they're struggling to get the people. Um, you know, they're dealing with a lot of the, the chaos at the OEMs um, who are all looking for new suppliers because they, they, they choked their, you know, they, they limited themselves to one or two really good suppliers. And they choked, then they, you know, Partnership for success. <laughs> I, I, I every time I, I hear a partnership for success, my I just slap my forehead. It's like partnership for whose success? Well, you uh -huh. make too you make too much money. Well, that's that's you know, you know, you don't make enough money. That's your problem, not our problem. And they you know, so now they're all trying to you know, qualify new suppliers. Which, as everybody knows, if you choke somebody out in this industry, it's. Yeah, you can, it takes a minute to, to turn off the lights, but it takes five years to turn them back on. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, finding somebody who's qualified to make a part, you know, getting those pesky FAA certifications. Um, you know, everybody's going through that right now. And, and as I'm sure you're experiencing firsthand, um, th there, there are all kinds of ways where it's difficult. It's not just getting a part out of a factory. It's getting management into a factory to help make the situation better. And it's yeah. just hard to recruit these days. Yeah, it's very hard to recruit. And then you look at like the USM, I look at the 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 used you know serviceable side and you know COVID comes along and they all were levered up. And you know their their businesses were good, they were smart, they were levering up pretty smartly. Then all of a sudden, you know the you know you know COVID comes along and People are sitting on 60, 70, 80 million dollars worth of highly levered material. And the banks come a calling. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, so you know, all these, you know, all these things that people know, you know, don't really think about just all hit at once. And now everybody is, you know, the rebuilding process is, you know, is coming along. Now, what does that do? That leaves a lot of opportunity, you know, for people with, you know, with with if you got some money, some dry powder, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. If, if you had the expertise, you know, and a lot of material, you know, you're, you know, I can't take expertise to the bank. That's the, that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm seeing right there. Yeah. From that standpoint. I, I want to pick up on your point about opportunity because I, I, I do think that's underappreciated right now. You know, if you take a step back for a moment um, and if we all just realize that we are in a supply constrained environment for several more years in this industry. Um, whether it's on defense side or commercial aviation, 
business aviation, everybody's suffering some kind of su supply constraint, and that's going to be the limiting factor um, going forward. And that's a when you when you realize that that's a very different situation from a demand you know issue. We don't have a demand issue anymore. You don't have to go out and generate demand. We've got too much demand for what we can supply, and so we are going to be struggling to supply in many ways across this industry, probably at least through 2026, mm -hmm. could very well be a decade issue. Um, it depends on how long it takes to get various supply chains resynchronized. Uh, and that's just a very, very different place than we were, I think, um, you know, five years ago, certainly before many of these, these recent crises. Um, and you talk about opportunity there. There is a, a tremendous amount of opportunity for suppliers to grow and really shine in a supply constrained environment. You think about the opportunity to go win more business at a current tier one or, or OEM customer. They wanna see reliability in your deliveries. Mm -hmm. um, they wanna see you have high quality you know, control uh, dependable product. They wanna know that you're financed and you can live into the future and they'll go strike a long-term agreement with you um, probably with the best terms that you've seen in in who knows how long 10 15 years because they're desperate to line yeah. you up if you are that strong you can go take market share from you know the oems tier ones yeah. they'll bring you the work from their other providers who are failing right. or that they want to move to right. it's so much opportunity out there right now uh, i think it is too well i think you know and i think the conversations are different now you know here's the conversations you had the big oems you know i was talking to a, a guy you know i'm gonna pick on honeywell for a little bit i was talking to a guy and he said he was net 180 days oh yeah for stuff and i'm like what you know, are you just going to finance their supply chain? He's like, yeah, by the time I buy the material, by the time I make it, by the time I deliver it, then I'm 180 days. He's, you know, he's 270 days cash flow negative Yes, on this stuff. And I think the dialogues are now starting to happen where the OEMs are realizing, you know, most of their tier one tier or not tier ones, but their tier two, tier three suppliers are small businesses. You know, I'm working with a business now that's seven million dollars, seven million revenue. You know, they can't afford 180 days net. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? and I think that they're saying, okay, you know, the days of the GE bet, you know, ballroom bid process where we just come in and we beat the snot out of everybody, those days are gone. I think the the conversations are starting to happen at the OEMs is we need to pick, you know, for every part component, whatever, we need to have three to four suppliers of that. We'll keep them all healthy. And we need to start, you know, we need to guarantee our success by guaranteeing their success. And these days of you need us more than we need you are are, are hereby. Those are gone. Over. They're gone. Yeah. You know, I uh, you you raised a couple of great points there. And, and one of them that I want to go back on is I feel like <laughs> I feel like the OEMs and the tier one still are not appreciating the fact that. Um, that there could be major ramifications if one or two or five of these smaller companies, that $7 million revenue company, for instance, mm -hmm. goes out of business in an uncontrolled way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's so many reverberations happening around the supply chain right now. We all know that it, all it takes is, 
you know, one forging part, one wiring harness somewhere, some, some, some fasteners delivery that didn't get delivered for whatever reason. And, and that OEM's line gets shut down. I mean, that's yeah. what happens right now at Boeing. They don't do uh, out-of-process work. They're just going to stop the line and hold the narrow bodies until they get all the parts together to complete that aircraft. And so it can be any one of these parts that that don't deliver. And I still feel like the OEMs and the tier ones are are struggling to get over their old old mental approach, which basically said, you know, we don't have to worry so much about the tier two, tier three, tier four. We'll leave that up to somebody else, the tier one or the tier two to go manage their supply chain. They'll figure out a way to compensate if some one of these small shops goes out of business. And I just don't understand how you can have that approach anymore when you are relying on every deliverable to come in on time and have high quality so that your own line isn't disrupted. I think the OEMs are going to be forced to be more attentive to these smaller companies. And, and, and you know, I can't say that they're going to be um, more supportive necessarily, but I do think they're going to be more attentive to the health of the supply chain at the tier three, tier four level, because they're becoming far more dependent on it than, than probably people have experienced in a generation. Well, I think it comes down to risk management. And you sit there and go, where where are we risky? You look at the autom automobile suppliers. Yeah, they all got crushed, but they got crushed by, you know, the chips. And you, you see sixty or seventy thousand F one fifties parked in a you know in a stadium because they, mm -hmm. they can't get delivered. You think about that. You know, where where is the bottleneck at Boeing? And I think the key is, is, and this is what I harp on all the time. It's you guys need to get out of your big company heads, and start thinking small company. And you know, you you need to understand that. The mentality of your suppliers is a lot of them are, you know, the day to day. They're they're talking to their banker every day or every week or every month, and the banker is financing their production. And you know, sometimes they're living paycheck to paycheck. And you, know, you start to choke them out, or you start to disrupt them. You know, you you don't know you're you you don't know what that effect is going to have on you, right. And you know, I'm surprised. Like, quite frankly, I'll pick up Boeing now. I'm surprised Boeing hasn't seen a, you know, Elliott Management or a, you know, an Ackman come in. You know, I think of a company that could, you know, Disney is, you know, you know, you know, Disney got hammered for, you know, an act by an activist. I'm surprised Boeing hasn't just been right up that, that alley. Um, I have wondered about that for a few years myself, and, you know, I think, um, I think that uh, that potential risk for Boeing leadership remains and and it could very well be supply chain related in the end uh you and I were at uh an avwe conference and and we've been watching other events elsewhere and and the big theme i hear across all of these supply chain events right now is that when it comes to who people want to work for and who people believe more and better when it comes to whatever forecast is being issued Boeing is at the bottom of the list. Mm -hmm. Airbus is at the top of the list. Everybody wants to work for Airbus. They want to grow their share on Airbus programs. They just believe Airbus more when it comes to whatever Airbus's forecast is, even though Airbus's forecasts are significantly bigger than Boeing. Like if you just looked at an apples to apples comparison, mm -hmm. you you think, oh, Airbus wants to build 75 A320s by 2026. Uh, that's a huge, huge <laughs> number that that people debate can can industry even support that even if you believe them 
But, you know, setting that aside for a moment, Airbus is enjoying a couple of things. One, they had a better relationship with their suppliers before all the crises hit. Um, They were seen as more supportive, seen as basically kinder, gentler um, in their approach to suppliers. And also, at the same time, they maintained rates higher during the crises. That helped a lot, too. And Europe did a couple of other things with workforce that that were good that that just kind of helped them maintain a, a much better approach. I think the business uh, aircraft OEMs are also enjoying good reputations. We mm-hmm. see good we see um, good comments made about Gulfstream, for instance, uh, Textron. You know, it's just obviously the business aviation market is doing well, the best it has in more than a generation, and so suppliers are very confident there. But you go back to these lists. Um, the engine makers, not so much, but even below the engine makers, it's Boeing. Boeing gets hammered. Very few people believe their rate forecasts. And part of it is because everybody sees them struggle right now to deliver on a reliable rate of 31 737s yep. a month. Um, Boeing told us they were going to be there a year ago, and they're still not there. You know, We think they were somewhere in the 20s for all of 2022. 20, 20 new 737s a month. Um, that speaks volumes. Uh, I was listening to the Howmet Aerospace teleconference last week. Uh, John Plant, the chairman and CEO there, talking about, hey, I'm going to be really, really conservative when it comes to future forecasting of investment to get up to Boeing's new rate because I want to see Boeing produce at the rate they say they're going to before I, I get there. And you know, if if Boeing can't win over John Plant at Helmet Aerospace, Boeing can't win over anyone else because mm-hmm. Helmet Aerospace provides those forgings and castings that have to be provided long ahead of every other part that goes into an airliner. And if you don't have that part flowing at a higher rate, you're not going to yeah. have anything else flowing. Yeah. My, look, my my struggle with Boeing is yeah, the, look, the Max thing, you know. I look at I look at the world a little differently than maybe the you know, the, the the modern day press. I look at the Max issue, and I, and I'm very critical. Anytime you know, if I look at the two Max crashes, the guy in the right seat and both airplanes had less than 350 hours total time. You know, not jet time, not 737 time, total time. And I'm thinking, you know, a guy who's got less than, or you know, guy girl whatever's got less than, you know. 350 hours total time probably doesn't deserve to be in the right seat of a 737 because if something goes wrong, they're just baggage. So, but what I'll do is I'll, I'm going to take it a different level though. I'll say they just haven't executed the max program, put them in a ditch. The KC 46 program is not anywhere near where it needs to be. The T seven program is struggling. Uh, seven, eight, seven, seven, eight, seven issues. Everything they've touched is you know is a mess somewhere there, there's a mess that needs to be cleaned up you're like all right yep. you know calhoun mr calhoun all right which are we going to focus on which are we going to focus on first because you got angry customers everywhere um and 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 if that's a you know once again maybe i start to think about let's look at the entire business maybe we need to split off defense maybe we need to start splitting you know maybe we need to divvy this company up a little bit and put in leadership who can execute on the programs that are in front of them. Um, I don't know. That's just kind of what the way I see Boeing right now. I um, I will. Um, I'm going to use your podcast to make a very bold prediction to go on record in public and say 
Boeing will not look the way it does now by the end of this decade. And, you know, that's some may say that's an easy prediction to make, but I think significant changes are coming to the company um, based on conditions that it can't fully control. And whether it's an, an activist investor coming in, whether it's the government mandating that something happens so that the defense and space programs that the U.S. government are buying actually are good and reliable and, and workable within a budget, um, whether it's airlines and lessors teaming up to just say, enough, Boeing, we, we, we need you to produce. And if you can't produce, um, we want changes, you know, to openly call for changes at Boeing. I, I don't know what it is, but you just described a scenario where across the board, Boeing is customers upset left and right. Yeah. And I don't know how a company without a very clear plan to get over that can overcome it without major changes happening at the company. You know, it, yeah. unless Mr. Calhoun has a secret plan to win the war in his back pocket that nobody knows about, um, things are going to change there. And I don't, I'm not smart enough to tell you which one it is, but I absolutely think Boeing is not going to look the same at the end of this decade that it does right now. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, quite frankly, when Boeing stock during COVID dropped down to 85 bucks, I was actually a little surprised that Carlisle or, you know, Veritas or one of these big private equity companies, Blackstone, didn't make just a big run on them. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was shocked that private equity or, Somebody just didn't you know, go vulture investing and say, we're going to go take a big chunk of this thing and, you know, take it to a new level. But, who, yeah. you know, it's all speculation. Who knows what happened, whether somebody yeah. in government kind of whispered, said, don't, mm -hmm. you know, don't yeah. go after them. Uh, uh, Boeing did, you know, come out with that very eyebrow raising uh, request in the beginning of the pandemic for $65 billion And what was essentially what they were asking for was grants from the U.S. government. Um, mm -hmm. You know, who knows whether that was trying to stave off any kind of activist. I'm speculating. I want to admit I have no reporting on yeah. this, but we may never know the true history behind it. But that's all in the past. That doesn't right. mean nothing is going to happen going forward. I agree with you. No, I totally agree with you. It's a national security issue. And, and I think that things there are pressures, some severe pressures to make changes. But, you know, outside of Boeing, you know, let's talk about something else we were talking about. You got commercial aviation and you got the MAX, you got the 787, you got the A350, the A320 and the A220 coming on strong. You know, nobody's talking about the airliner of the future because there's no engine of the future. No airliner of the future, no new engine. Um, you know, we're we're going through a decade of. Uh, uh, I hope you like what you have. I, I, you know the you know you know the the, the, the green issues aside. Well, you know, yeah. Hey, look, you know, at the end of the day, the A two twenty is a very green airplane. I mean, it was yeah, you, the A three, the Max, the A three twenty are too. Um, you know, but you no at, no engine. Like I mean, that part of it is it's not just no new aircraft getting announced by the airframers. It's it's no big new engine. Uh, if you take away, you know, a couple of these side projects that that the OEM that the engine OEMs have announced, um, none of them were serious. Uh, none of them were something that they expected to roll out before the end of the decade. I I look at the Max. I look at the A320. I was sitting in Boston, watched a tap 
Portugal, A320 fly in from Lisbon, I guess, for wherever it comes from. And I'm like, well, it's a new day. You know, that route is now, uh, you know, 180 seat narrow body. That's right. Um, you know, is this what the world is? Is this what the world's going to come to? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, narrow yeah. body to the moon. Sign them up with NASA. Narrow see how far they can get these things flying. So you know, I, I, yeah, like eight hours on a eight hours on a on an A three eighty. Well, I do I do Charlotte to to L A quite a bit. That's five. So, what's what's three more hours, right? But uh, it's a whole new day. So you know, but but I look at you know, I listen to Richard Ablafia talk, and he goes, "All right, you know, how are these airframers going to invest in the future when they have no?" You know, they've got no knowledge of, you know, you know, no historical knowledge. No, all your engineers are going to age out. How are they going to build new engines in the future when nobody's got that experience? And that's, yeah, that, that scares I, me. I, and it, it scares me, too, um, partly because we've seen this movie before. And um, I think if you go back in, in just the recent history after the end of the Cold War, um when we had the last supper in the defense industry and uh, there was a massive consolidation at the top of the industry there. And you at the exact same time saw a fall off in the number of major new programs that were just getting announced every year. Um, and it's something, it's an issue to this day for the much smaller and more consolidated defense industry we have. That has ramifications that play out all the way through the workforce and through the supply chain. You know, the lifeblood of this industry is new programs, new platforms, new aircraft, new mm -hmm. engines. You got to have this bright, this bright, shiny object that's well established. We're going to the moon, um, whatever it is, to build the new vehicles that drive the desire for new technology, the development of the new technology to get there. And when you don't have that bright, shiny object, Eventually, that kind of stasis, that pause, flows all the way through the sector, and it comes down to workers deciding, hey, I'm, I'm bored here, or there's no growth here, there's nothing mm -hmm. dynamic, I don't want to go work for a large OEM just to help them make more money to return mm -hmm. to their shareholders, I want to work you know, where I can put my hands on an aircraft where we're building something or get involved in new engine technology. And when you don't have those programs, you're not going to attract the workers. If you can't attract the workers, you're going to have problems with supply. If you can't supply, you can't complete the deliverables on the current programs that you have. It's just kind of a downward spiral. And so I'm, I'm afraid that that no new aircraft, the no new engines has ramifications for commercial aviation that essentially lead it to be set up for some kind of outside disruptor that comes in. And again, I'm not smart enough to tell you who it is, but we do know there are new technologies being developed elsewhere in the advanced air mobility market, mm -hmm. uh, regional hybrid, you know, electric uh, hybrid uh, engines and, and uh, new potential airliners in the regional sector mm -hmm. happening. Business aviation could get disrupted that way too. Um, there are ways that the customer that wants to fly can have alternatives in the future that may not necessarily involve the classic narrow body provided by Airbus or Boeing. Uh, so, you know, it's a question of how things change, not if, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, I see a lot of the innovation coming from you know the you know the the, the EV tall guys, the, the archers, 
you know, of the world. That's where a lot of the innovations go on. Absolutely. And, and I think that a lot of the VC money is going to go into innovating and ultimately it's going to become like the pharmaceutical industry where small companies take the risk. And then the big, you know, the big pharma guys, the Pfizer's and the the Abbott Labs and whoever come in and they're like, okay, you got your FDA approval. Um, we're gonna buy you for big for big multiple. And maybe that's what happens in uh, you know, that's where the innovation comes. Um, it comes out of the big guys, it goes to the little guys. They take the risk and then they take the risk with the understanding that, hey, if we hit a home run on this thing, we're going to get bought for big numbers and we're all going to get rich. Yes. Um, yeah. So long as the innovation keeps happening, I don't really care. Yeah, I don't really care if that's if that's the business case at all, but you just want to see the innovation happening. And it no, needs but to I, happen. I, I think you are right on. I completely agree with the expectation that the innovation, the uh, leading edge kind of research and development is going to be happening at the smaller companies for a couple of reasons. They are by definition nimbler. Mm -hmm. uh, they're faster. They're more agile. The big, big reason though is because there is this mountain of dry powder on the private investment side of the world that is still looking for places to invest. Yeah. And, you know, they all want that Facebook Apple, Amazon effect, where all they got to do is choose one or two unicorns and they make their big money. And if, if the other ones fail, so be it as a private investor, you're making your returns and that's what you're happy about. So they got so much dry powder, they're willing to go invest in these smaller companies that are coming up with everything from new engine architectures to uh, new aircraft manufacturing capabilities. Um, you, you think about there's new companies that are popping up that are promising to help you make your parts better, faster, cheaper using yep. robotics, using additive manufacturing, mm -hmm. automation, you know, and that's going to impact the industry from the bottom up. It is not the Boeings and Airbuses and the Embraers and, and the big OEMs and tier ones that are leading in the adoption of these new technologies. That's not to say that they're not playing with them. They are playing with them. I think they're playing with them mostly just to stay familiar, but yep. they're not really investing in them on a big scale. And and Boeing is a great case of this where um, Calhoun comes in and in order to try to cut costs and get the company back on a financially stable footing and start returning, you know, returns to shareholders. Um, one of the many things they do at Boeing is they cut the annual R&D. Yep. And they do at the exact same time, take a half a billion dollars and go invest in WISC, yeah. their advanced uh, air mobility play. And they do it because they say, it's not necessarily that they think air taxis are going to show up anytime soon, but WISC is investing heavily in automation, you know, in single pilot, no pilot automation. And that's where Boeing is putting its big investment push. If you want to look at any one big place mm -hmm. that we know about, maybe they're doing something in the classified sector. Um, I, I kind of personally doubt it that it's bigger than the WISC investment, but, you know, Boeing is investing in a small new leading edge startup. Mm -hmm. um, that's just emblematic of what's going to happen in this industry, I think, for a while. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I look at you know, Blade, you, know, you, you guys are in New York City, Blade. And I, when they went public in a SPAC, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, but now I've kind of got my eye on them. Um, they've got good, they've got good management. 
Um, they're and, actually operating. <laughs> and they're operating. Well, they're operating. They've got good management. And where they've really taken it in the a toll is, hey, not necessarily the people movement, but the organ transplant arena. And uh, I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Smart move. Yeah. You know, right. 100 miles, 100 miles in New York City. A lot of organs need, you know, moving around. Let's go conquer that market. And then we'll invest in, maybe we'll invest in the EV tall side, you know, alongside it as well. And we'll go from there. You know, that's interesting, interesting thinking. Yep. So, yep. Um, you know, it's just one, one thing to me where smart people are out there kind of looking at things and going, Hey, let, let's, let's do stuff a little different. I think Ukraine is showing that the, the, the drone, you know, the, the, you know, the, the requirement for, for unmanned and drones and, you know, you know, uh, 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 V-22-esque uh, type of aircraft are, are probably the wave of the future as well versus, you know, looking back. So, you know, I, I see the innovation for the defense house is coming. But once again, I see it's the small guys that are that are really doing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like that. I like the I like the fact that it's a small, the small VC backed businesses with the brain power. It is. Are, are driving it. I agree. I mean, I, I think it's a great thing overall for the industry. It gives uh, anybody, you know, we were just complaining about no new airliner and, and no new airliner uh, engine, commercial aero engine. And and you can come away from that really pessimistic. Well, anybody who's pessimistic about that, they should go look at all the innovation that's happening at the small startup upstart level. And mm-hmm. you'd be really optimistic from what the, the, the just the, the amazing bravado of some of these companies and the things they're chasing and making even just incremental progress on getting there is really quite amazing. And you think, oh, well, you know, the money's going to dry up. Nobody's going to invest in these things. There's no indication that that's going to happen um, in the near future for, for very good, reliable reasons. And so a whole lot of innovation at the small level. I do mm-hmm. just want to add one kind of cautionary tale. It's like, you know, we think that the OEMs and the tier ones all they got to do is be ready to swoop in and buy one of these startups uh, when the time is right. And and I think that is a, a bit of a challenging scenario because it means you know which one to buy and when mm-hmm. and how to integrate them back into your OEM or tier one company. And I think there's a lot more risk there than is appreciated um, by the leaders of this industry. It's, you know, you there's going to be a risk involved in deciding, okay, it's time to go buy such and such company doing such and such thing. You're going to have to do it at the exact same time that your shareholders are increasingly demanding that you return, you know, money to them. Cause going forward, there's going to be a lot more price pressure, cost yeah. pressure on everything. And shareholders are not going to be the ones left, you know, yeah. uh, basically financing um, any of this. So I feel like, the OEMs and the tier ones are going to have to get a get better at their game of at least understanding what's happening at that startup level to know when they need to go buy one of them. Yeah, once again, it's it's encouraging their big company mindset to think small. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's easier said than done. But you, know, you got to start to think small. But um, you know, let's talk about yeah, you know, kind of the last thing we were going to you know, safety. Three major incidents in the last three weeks. Ooh. New York, Austin, Texas, and then the third one, I can't remember where it was with the Delta jet. Um, is it a, uh, are we a little snake bit or is it a, do you think it's a trend? Is the, is the industry pressured? Pilots, um, demand for pilots, people moving from the right seat to the left seat, 
you know, is, is, is it, are we snake bit a little bit or is it an ongoing trend that we need to start to monitor? Um, my personal opinion is we're snake bit, but you better stay on top of it um, because uh, safety is everything in our industry and safety is uh, our entire reputation. And so I do think that the, the, the past headlines from the past weeks and months, um, uh, they don't help anybody out, but they're a great reminder about why we are so obsessive compulsive about safety in this industry, including when it comes to the slowdown of introducing new technology and new approaches to everybody's dismay, including those of us inside the industry. When we want to see something be adopted quicker, the FAA go a little faster. There are good reasons <laughs> we don't I'll do that. that. And that's and that's because we have this incredible world-leading safety record and we want to keep it that way. Um, and I just want to remind everybody listening that we are the safest transportation mode for humans uh, that we know about when you look at rates for for uh, safety oh, yeah. and accidents kind of thing. So that has not changed. But you mentioned, you know, the difficulties of hiring pilots of um, we're kind of we're accelerating the move from the right seat to the left seat. Um it's a struggle. People, the pilots went through the pandemic and a lot of them had a lot more downtime than everybody wanted. And you've got to get them back up and trained and reoriented. Maybe some of them are on new platforms, new aircraft. Um, uh, we've got the operations tempo that's that's up back. I mean, essentially the operations tempos of flights are, are close to where they were pre-pandemic. Uh, so the demand is just absolutely crushing at the problems. Um, we have all the way going back to Southwest over Christmas. You know, you can blame whether it's their hub and spoke model or whatever, but the fact is they just don't have the crews um, to put on the aircraft and they, they can't afford to hire enough people to pay them enough to sit around and be ready to fly at a moment's notice. And so there's still, I think, a bit of the, the reverberations from the pandemic that we're working through. I'm not, I'm not concerned. It doesn't make me any less willing to fly me or to put my kids on an airplane by any stretch. But we do got to stay on top of this because I think um I don't think it gets any easier. And right. I think any opportunity we have to be reminded that safety is the most important thing is a good thing. Um, barring, you know, frankly, anybody getting hurt. But yep. uh, I don't like to see the headline of uh, an airline plummeting, you know, to 800 feet above the Pacific Ocean shortly after takeoff. Um, that would scare the hell out of me if I were in there. And, and you know, but uh, again, let's stay on top of it, everybody. I think we'll get through this. I think the headlines will abate, um, but the concerns shouldn't. And and anytime any one of these come up, we should all take it as seriously as it is. Look, the professionalism in the industry, when you think about what we're in a decade now with really, you know, with the Southwest Airlines, you know, the engine when the with the rotor burst. Okay. Right. One you know, that one incident. But other than that, you think about a decade of, you know, almost perfect safety. You know, yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, nobody, you know. No, no deaths in commercial aviation in the United States for about a decade. I mean, it's amazing to me, the professionalism. I think the hard part is, hey, look, we've all kind of, you know, we're all, we're all stretched a little bit. If you look at business aviation, the, the biggest challenge to business aviation right now is CAE and flight safety 
can't, you know, you can't get can't anybody train trained up. because they can't train up because there's no instructor. The instructors are all getting poached. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a, uh, that's a very, uh, that's a very challenging, uh, you know, that's a very challenging place to be. So, yeah. but I, I, you know, look where there's, where there's chaos, there's opportunities. The way I like to look at it. I think that eventually these, you know, small, you know, these, these small businesses will come along or these smaller businesses will come along and we'll start to figure things out and, People will make make a little bit of money on it. And I'm good with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the demand is there. The demand right. is there across this industry and every every niche you want to look at. And so you don't have to worry <laughs> so much about the demand being an issue mm-hmm. in the in the midterm. No. So I think I'm like everybody else. It's it's a little bit of uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there for a lot of smart business people to make. Yeah, you know, this the industry's on a, on on the right trajectory. It's got some. Fits and starts, but it's on the right trajectory for growth, and I'm I'm happy to see that get through yep. the challenges. So, yep. Hey, how do people get a hold of you, Michael? I'm at Aviation Week. Uh, you can write me at michael.bruno at aviationweek.com. Uh, when you go onto our website, any article I write, you can click on my byline, and that'll probably take you to a, a way to contact me. I'm always happy to hear from from everybody in the industry. And uh, uh, I'm also active on LinkedIn. So if you want to meet me there as you are too, Craig, I love your posts, given the guidance you you give the the tips, (laughs) a couple of them every once in a while to me, just like, wow, that's, that's just common sense. But you always give an example of where somebody tried to avoid common sense and, you know, it never quite works out the way you hoped it would. So I, I, uh, I love that. And uh, like you on LinkedIn, but um, I just looking forward to a good year, I think of growth for the industry, um, but definitely some challenges here. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to spend all year talking about how the challenges aren't necessarily getting any easier. So, hey, opportunity in those challenges, just like you said. Plenty of opportunity. So, hey, thanks for coming on, Michael. And great, I, I greatly enjoyed the conversation today. Look forward to the next one. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com. Or check us out at www.northstaresg.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pickett.